Good morning, everyone. Man, it's so good to be here with you all. 23 years ago today, I stood on a stage in Overland Park, Kansas, at Emmanuel Baptist Church and said, I do, to my bride of 23 years. Happy anniversary to Danielle today. Danielle, this week, one of, one of the days in my quiet time was Song of Solomon. And in Song of she, she just said, oh, no, I'm not going to, it's going to be okay. I'm not going to say any of the crazy parts in front of everyone. In chapter 8, the bride says to her husband, I have made you content. And as I read that this week, and I thought, I am perfectly content and totally satisfied in my marriage to you. Um, and I love you like with all of my heart and I enjoy doing life and ministry and friendship and family with you. You are uh, one of the few areas of my life I'm totally, totally satisfied with. So I love you. Um, Happy anniversary. All that is in the card that I'll give you at dinner. (laughs) Plus some other stuff, but that's not for for everyone in the room. Um, For those of you who are watching online, welcome. And let me say good morning to Jerry and Becky Baxter. And Jerry, thank you for reaching out this week. For those of you who've been around our church for a long time, Jerry and I were in a Bible study group 15 years ago when we re- began to read books that really challenged our faith about what Christianity and church should look like. And if you ever came to the 8 a.m. service, he was the usher who greeted you at the door every Sunday for eight years. And because of some heart surgeries and some medical precaution, he'd not been able to come since COVID, and now his, his back makes it hard for him to be here. Um, but Jerry, when you reached out to me yesterday and just said, Christian, I want you to know we're watching every week, can I tell you how much that meant to me? And for those of you who see me every week, but I don't see you, please let me know. Shoot me an email, send me a text, let me know that you're still a part of our congregation, and let us know how we can minister to you, because it means a lot to us to know that your heart is still with us. Matthew 15 is where we're hanging out today. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, no big deal. Everything I read from the Bible will be on the screen, so it'll be super easy to follow along. We hope to be a church that reaches people who've maybe never even owned a Bible. But if we can help you get one, we want to do that. Today, if you have a smartphone, all you got to do is download the Bible app. That'll make it really easy for you to see everything we're reviewing. But if we can help you get a Bible, after service today, go to the Connection Center, introduce yourself, say, hey, Pastor Christian said, you've got a Bible for me. We would love to give you one and help you get one so you can have your own Bible um, in your hands. And if you haven't already, pull your notes out of your sermon guide so that you can just kind of follow along as we go through. If you have the Journey Church app, you'll be able to take notes on your phone and save it to your phone or email it to yourself or someone else um, when you are done. Before we dig into Matthew chapter 15, a couple things that were just mentioned that I want you to be aware of. You heard about serve week inside your bulletin is this little serve week graphic if you're watching online you can text see that it's a different number now four seven four seven four seven it went away it's like the old like i've got mail so here's the new number today to text text the word journey to that number today is the last day to guarantee yourself a serve week t-shirt because we order those in advance this is the week we serve our community and we show our community we don't just tell We show our community who Jesus is and how Jesus would love them. So our goal is that every person in our congregation, hopefully as families, signs up for one of our more than 50 projects and spends a morning or an afternoon serving our community. Together, you can sign up today or you can go out to the booth um, that Sherry Hennig, our community outreach director, has set up. Uh, We would want you to be a part of that. And then you heard in the video announcements um, our new technology that we've got called Community Church Builder. 
As our church grows, the most important thing to us is to minister to you well, to make sure you're known, to make sure you're loved, to make sure you're cared for, to make sure you're seen, to make sure that you're followed. We think this new technology will do a whole lot better helping us know who you are, who your family members are, what your needs are. It basically builds a personalized database for you inside our church that makes sure our church knows all of your needs and, and how we can serve you and how you are serving in the kingdom of God. So specifically for those of you who give online, when you go to give, it's going to look different. That's not any spam account or anything. That's the new platform that we're using. And for those of you who give regularly, like you just set up your giving and leave it, over the course of the year, probably someone from our finance office will reach out to you and walk you through how to change that. We think it'll make it easier for you to track what you're giving. It'll make it easier for us to track you and how we minister to you better. So um, please take those announcements seriously because we think they're going to help make us a better church for you. So we're in a series called The Kingdom that actually has three little parts, Kingdom Foundations, Kingdom Citizens, Kingdom Mindset. Today is the last of the Kingdom Citizens part. We're in the sixth week. We're learning about people in the Bible, and we're trying to just basically reverse engineer their spiritual DNA to see what we can learn about our own faith walk and where we need to grow. We've been through five weeks, and here's what we've learned the last five weeks about Kingdom Citizens. We learned they live with courage and conviction like John the Baptist. We learned that they live with compassion that moves them to generosity. Not only do I see something, I do something about what I see. We learn that they live with big faith. They get out of the boat and long faith. They keep their eyes fixed on Jesus. When life gets hard, they don't quit easy. We learn that they primarily have a heart that relies on Jesus, not religious tradition to make them close to God. And then we learned last week that kingdom citizens, they really, um, they have a humble spirit. This is, I cannot do it by myself, but a hopeful spirit because they've met Jesus. Those are the five things that we've learned. And every week I've asked you to kind of pick the words on that screen that should describe your faith, but don't yet. And figure out a plan by the end of this year to, to become more courageous, to have more conviction, to become more compassionate, to become more generous, to take a step of faith, like grow in your faith. This week, we're going to look at kingdom citizen number six, and we're going to look at a group of 4,000 people that are going to teach us what it looks like to have the affections of our heart changed. Like we're going to go from loving one thing most to loving something else most and all things different. And we're going to see what it looks like as we walk through this to be invited into spiritual rest. So those are the goals of today that I'm going to hope to accomplish as we dig into Matthew chapter 15 a little bit. We always pray at our church and ask God to speak to our hearts. So would you bow your heads here? And if you're watching online, take that deep breath that just settles your spirit into this moment. And this should be the transition time in this service. If it hasn't already occurred, this service is no longer about me and you. It's about you and God. And you need to pray that you hear from him, not me. So would you just pray in your heart and ask God to speak to you? And would you tell him that you'll be listening? God, that's our prayer. That my voice would just be tuned out. And your Holy Spirit would have all of our attention. Speak to our hearts today. Show us what it looks like. God, to live as a kingdom citizens who the affections of our heart and the things that are important to us change because we meet you. And God, show us what it looks like to be invited into your rest and to have your rest. That's our prayer. Those are our goals today. So Holy Spirit, help us accomplish those in our lives. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Matthew chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 29 and we're going to finish the chapter. It says, Jesus left there. You might circle the word there. 
That is modern-day Lebanon. Last week, we were in Tyre and Sidon. That's what Lebanon was referred to, that geographical region, 2,000 years ago with Jesus. So he left there, and he went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days. They don't have anything to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they might collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where can we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he'd given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men, besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat, and he went to the vicinity of Magadan. Somebody say what? Somebody say, why? So those are the important questions that are going to like pull our heart into today's story. Because if you've been tracking with me in this series, what we just read is almost exactly what we read in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21, except Jesus fed 5,000, not 4,000. So if you've been like in this Bible study time, as we read this, you have to be thinking, what is any different about this than what Jesus just did like 40 verses ago? And the answer is, what is different about this text is why is very important to our faith. What is different between Matthew 15 feeding 4,000 and Matthew 14 feeding 5,000? What is different is why it's really, really important to our faith. So we're going to look at what is different and why it's so important to our faith today. And that's going to show us, number one, that kingdom citizens are people who live with changing affections. Kingdom citizens are people whose hearts used to be set on one thing and are now set on something different. You say, where do you get that in the text? Well, when you learn what is different between the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000, it becomes very, very clear to us. So look at verses 29 through 31 again. It says, Jesus left there, so we know where there was, kind of modern-day Lebanon, and he went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a great mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. If you have your pen, I want you to circle the words God of Israel. Because this is the first hint that Matthew gives us at what is happening spiritually. As a matter of fact, when I read this, and again, I've been reading the Bible, studying the Bible, teaching the Bible, I've got three Bible degrees from colleges and seminaries, but when I was reading this, I immediately stopped when I saw this phrase because I thought, like, pause, that is abnormal. Here's a pop quiz for you. The people of Israel would call the God of Israel what? God. They call him God. The people of Israel called the God of Israel God. But people of other countries who worshipped other gods would call the God of Israel what? The God of Israel. So this is the first hint that we are not with Jewish people talking about Jewish things, doing Jewish ministry. 
Because in Matthew chapter 8, we read that Jesus goes and forgives a man who's been paralyzed. And when he gets up and walks away, the Jewish people said they praised God. Not the God of Israel, but they praised God. Who is the God of Israel? They praised God because they'd never seen anything like this before. But here we see specific people saying, we're not just praising God. We're praising the God of Israel. So we learn that something unique is going on here that's different. These are not Jewish people like in Matthew chapter 14 that Jesus fed when he fed 5,000 of them. And when we do just a little bit of background history and the text of scripture, we find out not only are we exactly right, we can actually put ourselves on the map. Because in Mark chapter 7 verse 31, in a parallel account of what Jesus is doing in the feeding of the 5,000, we read that Jesus left the region of Tyre, he went through Sidon, and then he went down through the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Decapolis. So Mark tells us exactly where Jesus is. Matthew just gives a little bit of a hint of it. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important to study not just Scripture, but all of Scripture. Because the four Gospels of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they build on each other to tell the entire picture. You have some friends who maybe are not followers of Jesus, who will say sometimes the Bible says... This about a story, and sometimes it says this about a story. How do you know that it can be trusted? But anyone who's an honest historian would tell you as the amount of information grows, the amount of credibility grows. So Matthew says he's at the Sea of Galilee. Mark, who's speaking not to Jewish people, but Gentile people, says he was near the region of the Sea of Galilee called the Decapolis. It would be like us saying someone robbed a bank As the alarm was going off, we saw a blonde woman wearing a blue hat walk out of the bank in sunglasses with a bag thrown over her shoulder. I think she was the criminal. And as the officers continued to talk to other people, if somebody says, I saw a blonde lady in a blue hat wearing sunglasses walk out of the bank, she walked down the street, she got in the gray car and left... Would that mean that the first person who just said, I saw a blonde lady in a blue hat, didn't know what they were talking about? Would that make the story more credible or less credible, having more information? More. So we have some people who say, sometimes Matthew and Mark say different things about the same story. Yes, they do. And it actually makes the Bible more credible, not less credible. It's why we like to study scripture so much. Because when we learn exactly where Jesus was, what is different about this story becomes for us why it is so important to us. So let's put the map back up that we were at last week just so we can kind of trace this in our head. So Sea of Galilee, right under the two E's, Capernaum, that's where Jesus had been doing ministry. He left last week, went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, top northwest corner, not just of Israel, but out of the country. Jesus now comes back to the Sea of Galilee. He goes to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. We see Judea and Samaria, Galilee, those were areas of Israel. The Decapolis, which you see on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and then just a little bit tucked in on the western side of the river, the Decapolis were ten cities that were Gentile or more specifically Hellenistic in the original eastern portion of Israel. That's what the Decapolis was. Deca, ten polis cities. They were ten cities that were located, for the most part, nine of the ten in what used to be old eastern Israel. But they were Hellenized cities. What does that mean? It means they were Greek in culture, then they became Roman in culture. And it means they were cities who had a very robust spirituality, they had a very robust religion, they had a very robust system 
of worship. That's where Jesus was. And Jesus steps into these cities that have their own gods, their own temples, their own worship, their own Bibles, if you would say. They've got their own religious systems. And they meet Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus does something for them that their religious systems have not been able to do. And these Gentile people who worship these Roman and Greek gods and goddesses after meeting Jesus said, nobody does what this guy does. And they began to change their allegiances to the God of Israel. Look at verse 31 again. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. We see that the people of the Decapolis experienced the power of the God of Israel, and it changed the affections of their heart. They used to believe one way, but once they met Jesus, it changed what they thought about everything in life. Now, the biggest of these 10 cities is a city that some of you have been to with me. It was on the western side of the Jordan River, and it was a city called Bashan, which in the day of Jesus had, had its name changed to Scythopolis. It's more recently now been named to, renamed to Bashan. It was the capital city, the largest city of the 10 cities. And I have walked down the streets of first century Bashan. And when you walk down the streets of first century Bashan, literally in the city center was a massive temple to the god Dionysus, who was the god of wine and of revelry in the Roman culture. At the top of the Acropolis, which if you're up for climbing about 490 stairs in the heat of the Middle Eastern summer, on the top of the Acropolis, there was a temple to Zeus. This was a city that had, had churches, had temple, had gods, had goddesses, had worship. These were places that had things they had devoted their hearts to. And then they met Jesus and their affections began to change. It's interesting, Beit Shan would have been the last major city that Jesus walked through on the way to the cross. He had to pass the temple to Dionysus and the temple to Zeus on his way to the cross. And it would have been the last city that the apostle walked through on his way to Damascus. So it's interesting, Jesus had to face these foreign gods on the way to the cross. And the apostle Paul would have had to leave these foreign gods in his past on the way to meet Jesus. See, their affections were changed when they met who Jesus was and when they believed deeply in who Jesus was. One of my favorite books that I have ever read, one of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Tim Keller. One of my favorite books that I read that he wrote in 2016 was a book called Counterfeit Gods. And the purpose of this book was basically to expose the things that Christians set their affections on that they worship, but by worship he means they have more security and more energy poured into them than they do Jesus. It is a fascinating read if you're looking for something to read in the month of July. He opens this book by kind of saying, here's, the per- here's what I'm going to try to teach you in this book. He says, in scripture, God says that the human heart takes good things, like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. We think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment, if we can only attain them. But he says anything that becomes more important and non-negotiable in our life than God becomes to us an enslaving idol. 
What are the things that makes us uncontrollably anxious and angry and despondent? What are the things that rack us with a guilt that we can't shake? Idols control us since we feel we must have them or life is totally meaningless. I was with a friend this week who was talking about a John Piper podcast. Anybody, anytime anybody talks about John Piper saying anything, I perk up because he's so brilliant in his teaching and preaching of the scriptures. And he was talking about John Piper and yoga, which was, uh, for those of you who know anything about John Piper or yoga, that's an interesting combination. <laughs> and he said he heard somebody on a podcast ask John Piper, is yoga sinful? This was a thing a couple years ago that people were trying to figure out. Is yoga sinful? And he said, Piper responded, of course, like, of course, the act of yoga, of course, breathing and stretching to a nicely scented incense. Like, of course, there's nothing sinful about that. He said, however, if the instructor is trying to guide you to have inner peace that's not based on Jesus, it can become an idol. And if the reason you do yoga is to calm your spirit rather than going to Jesus to calm your spirit, it can absolutely become an idol. And I thought, go get him, Piper. Like, it's only Piper can do. Keller takes several pages in this book to talk about how ideology in our life has been hijacked by politicians who promise us that they can give us our ideology and they can be our God. And he said, it's led to so much turmoil in our life. The fascinating thing about this, in 2016, I decided I was going to try to read as many Tim Keller books as has been written. So like at the end of 2015, I bought like 20 Tim Keller books, had them on my bookshelf. And every time I jumped on an airplane, I'd grab one because I can usually read a book on any plane trip that I'm taking. And as I was flying to Washington, D.C., in 2016, we had a man in our church, a business leader who got invited to speak at the presidential, uh, the national prayer breakfast um, that like that, that morning, um, President Obama, First Lady Obama were there and like, you know, they were hosting it for all the dignitaries and press and religious leaders of America. So the national prayer breakfast was in the morning. And then there was a lunch that our business leader spoke at. And he said, hey, as my pastor, do you want to come like as my plus one and just kind of hang out with me? I said, man, I'd love to. At the breakfast, we were from me to the center camera from President Obama as he spoke. It was just cool to be in the room with like all of these people. And then between breakfast and lunch, we met up with a group of Kansas City politicians who just wanted to host this business leader and kind of say like, hey, congratulations. And we wanted to very specifically talk about race relations in Kansas City. So me and our business leader, Jimmy Dodd, who a lot of you know, was there. Um, and then Congressman Yoder from the 3rd District in Kansas, Republican, um, had lunch. And Congressman Cleaver from the 5th District um, in, in Kansas City uh, all went and, and spent two hours together sitting around the table talking about Kansas City, talking about politics, talking about race rela- relations. And it was fun to watch Yoder and Cleaver kind of go back and forth a little bit about things that were dividing people. And at some point, one of the politicians said, like, it just, like, we just, we cannot get everyone on the same page. Why do you think that is? And I had been reading this book on the airplane on the way there that day. And I was not supposed to talk at this lunch. But when he asked that question, (laughs) I was sitting beside Representative Cleaver and I said, can I read you something? He's like, yeah. So I reached down in my backpack. I pulled out my book and I said, I just read this on the plane yesterday. Why are we always divided? I said, Tim Keller, who he knew who Tim Keller was because Cleaver was a former pastor. Um, I said, he said that when politicians 
promise to make an ideology a reality if we will put our trust in them, that it, it divides people. And I said, let me tell you what Keller says about politics becoming possibly an idol. He says, this might be the reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in an extreme way. Because if our counterfeit God, meaning ideology, is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. We no longer say, what a shame, this is going to be difficult. But rather, this is the end. There is no hope. When either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. They become agitated and fearful for the future. They have put the kind of hope in their political leaders and their policies that was once reserved for God and the work of the gospel. When their political leaders are out of power, they experience a death. They believe that if their policies and their people are not in power, everything is going to fall apart. They refuse to admit how much agreement they actually have with the other party and instead focus on the points of disagreement, the points of contention overshadowing everything else, and a poisonous environment is created. A sign of idolatry in our politics is that opponents are not considered to be mistaken. They are considered to be evil. So I read that at the table. (laughs) It was like, check please. Like, <laughs> who invited this kid? Put your, like, put your book away. I was like, is that not true? Like, are you not guaranteeing us the life we want to have if you win? Are you not telling us if you lose and they get their way? Everything is like, is that not how we talk? So we look at things like money. We look at things like friendship and family. We look at things like the economy. We look at things like politics. And we set our affections on them. And I love Keller, how Keller, Keller says, how do, you, how do you figure out if you have an idol in your heart? What are the things that make you anxious? Do you get anxious when you think Jesus is no longer in control of the world? Or you think your manager's mad at you at work? Do you get anxious when you don't believe God's in control of the future anymore? Or when you just wonder what the stock market is doing? You can tell what sits on the throne of your heart by what makes you angry, by what makes you anxious, but what makes you want to choose sides? And Keller wraps up the book with this. I love this thought that he has that he puts together. Throw it up on the screen, guys. I want to read it. He says, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. Idols can't simply be removed. They must be replaced. And Jesus, listen, Jesus did not walk into the Decapolis and say, you can't worship Zeus. He didn't walk into the Decapolis and say, you can't worship Dionysus. He didn't walk into the the Decapolis and say, the Roman gods aren't real. He didn't say, you don't need them. He said, you do need me. And let me show you my power over the circumstances in life that nothing else has power over. And when they saw Jesus do things that nothing else and nobody else in life could offer them, their heart affections changed. That's what happens with kingdom citizens. It's not that we don't care anymore about old things. It's just that we realize Jesus is the only one who can do new things, and we care about him most. We care about Jesus and politics, just in that order. We care about Jesus and our savings, just in that order. We care about Jesus and the economy, just in that order. We care about Jesus and our health, just in that order. Can someone say amen, please? Like, I just want to make sure you're tracking with me. Like, we have changed affections We still care about lots of things. We just care about Jesus most. 
This was the message of the Decapolis. And if it just appears to be another feeding of the 5,000, we don't learn as much. But if we know who these people were and what they worshipped, and we see them change to worship Jesus instead, we see that hearts change. Hearts change when they meet Jesus. We also learn from this story that's different than the one in Matthew 14, that kingdom citizens are invited into spiritual rest. That would be number two. Kingdom citizens have their heart affections changed, but kingdom citizens are invited into spiritual rest. I want to show you where this is. Look at verse 32. It says, Jesus called his disciples to him. And he said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and they don't have anything to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they might collapse on the way. I need you to see really carefully something here. Jesus saw how the present needs of the people in front of him, he saw how their present needs would result in a future collapse without his help. No one had yet said we're hungry. But Jesus looked at them and it said he felt compassion. Jesus knew they're not hungry today, but they're going to be tomorrow. And if we don't feed them today, they're not going to make it through tomorrow. You know, I love that song that Jay and the team sang where we ask Jesus and his spirit to come alive in our life. You know, a lot of the things that Jesus asks you to do in obedience in your faith walk is not for today. He knows what's coming on the way home. He knows the phone call you're going to get at the end of next week. He knows what's going to happen in the economy, in your retirement, in your plan. Like, he knows what's coming next year. And a lot of the things that Jesus asks us to do today in faith are for what's coming tomorrow. So Jesus looks at these people and says, they all feel really good about life today. But I'm telling you, they will not have strength tomorrow to make it home unless we give them something to eat. So we got to feed them. So we've got to realize a lot of us, every Sunday we come and hear Jesus things and we think, like we tuck it away and think, when I need that, I'll use that. The lesson of today is if Jesus is telling you you need it today, it might be because it's too late to start it once you need it. They're going to collapse on the way home. So he asked his disciples, I love this in verse 33. He said, we got to give them some food. How can we get them some food? His disciples said, where are we going to get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd in verse 33? Jesus asked, verse 34, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. Now, I want you to see the difference here between the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000. For the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples said, you got to tell them to get up out of here There's no way we can help them. Tell them to go feed themselves. The disciples have taken a step forward because they did not say, make them feed themselves. They've also taken a step forward spiritually because I want you to see what happened. Feeding a 5,000, five loaves, two fish in the hands of Jesus made it happen. The disciples technically actually had more bread and fish for less people than the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 15. But they also had the spiritual humility to realize even though we have more for less, we don't have enough on our own. They had like the spiritual humility to say our very, very best is more than it used to be, but it's less than it needs to be to do what you have called us to do in life, Jesus. And I don't know if you've noticed it, but there is is a lack of humility in our world that is not yet figured out. 
Our best is not good enough. Our best is not good enough spiritually. Our best is not good enough as husbands and as wives and as fathers and as friends. Our best is not good enough until it's placed in the hands of Jesus. And then five and two feed 5,000 and seven and three or four feed 4,000. Like the disciples said, we actually have more for less, but it's not enough without you, Jesus. Like it has to be placed in your hand. But they didn't say send them away and they didn't say it can't be done. They just said like, this is still only a Jesus thing. That's why it's the title of our Bible says they only Jesus. Like they're looking around saying things in life only work with Jesus. Even though we have more for less from a resource standpoint, Jesus is only going to work with you. Read an article this week by Reuters that um, said that less and less Americans every year have wills for their life. So currently, I think 46% of Americans have a will for their life. People under the age of 30, less than one in five have a will for their life. People over the age of 65, it's more than two and three. Why is that? You say, as you get older, do you get wiser? I think as you get older, you get a little more humility about life one day ending. And you think, I guess we ought to prepare for what's real, what's coming. In our 20s, if we were just to go from estate planning, we would say that more than 80% of people in their 20s don't even have the humility yet to realize this life is not guaranteed to me tomorrow. So we should like, probably plan. And I'm not saying that's why people do that, but I find it an interesting trend that as we get older, we don't just get wiser, but we begin to get a little more realistic and a little more humble. I'm not always going to be here. Better figure out what that means for everybody else in my life. There's a part of humility that says, I'm feeling good right now. I just got done with my doctor's appointment. I got a clean bill of health. Business is good. Family's, family's good. Kids are good. Everything's, everyone's healthy. House is paid off. Cars are paid off. I think I can take a year or two now without Jesus. That is not, that's not the attitude of a kingdom citizen. Kingdom citizen says everything is going as well as it can go. But it's not enough without Jesus. I still need Jesus. So the disciples were like, we're doing better than we were, but it is like so far short, Jesus, of what we need. So what do we learn? Jesus says, give it to me. It'll be enough. Look at verse 35. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish. Circle the word seven there. When he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. They gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Circle the word satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven, circle the word seven again, basketfuls, pick up the word basketfuls, different word for basket than in Matthew 14. Seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men, besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and he went to the vicinity of Magadan. Somebody say 12. Okay, here's what I meant by that. Everybody say 12. Everybody say seven differences in our stories feeding of the 5,000 12 basketfuls picked up afterwards a basket the word for basket in the Greek language in Matthew 14 was like lunchbox you could fit like one or two meals in it in Matthew 15 seven basketfuls are picked up this means something to Jewish people see 12 is always the number for Israel in scripture 12 tribes of Israel. 12 is always going to be the number for Israel in Scripture. But seven 
is the number of perfection. Seven is the number of completion. Seven is the number of rest in Jewish scriptural history. The seventh day, the Shabbat in Israel, was the day they lived for. It was and remains the best day of the week. It is the day that is a picture of eternal rest. It is the day that is a challenge to current rest. It is the day that is a reminder of what God did in the past. This concept of rest. Jesus is basically telling the Gentile world, seven basketfuls, you are invited into the rest that God wants the world to have. The spiritual rest of not having to do it on your own, but to give your entire life over to Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 4, we see this concept of rest delivered to the people of Israel by a Christian pastor trying to teach them how God through Jesus the Messiah was inviting them into rest. And he's giving a picture of the Old Testament people who in the book of Hebrews or in the, in the Old Covenant text thought that the land was what they would get to give them rest rather than the Messiah. And he was saying these people generations ago moved into the land thinking they would get rest because they were in the land, but the rest was really in a relationship with God, not the land. And they missed the spiritual rest because they thought it was a place, not a person. So he gets down to verse 9, and he says, Let's, please not repeat that. Let's not think rest is a certain level of bank account. Let's not think rest is a certain level of health. Let's not think rest is a certain person in the White House. Let's not think rest has something to do with a place. Let's realize rest is a person. And he said in verse 9, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter his rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So the author of Hebrews said, if there's one word that describes living in relationship with the God of Israel, it's rest. And once you give up trying to connect to God on your own, once you give up trying to be good enough for God on your own, once you, try, once you give up trying to give enough, trying to serve enough, once you give up keeping your relationship with God in your own hands and you say, I can't do it, and you put it in the hands of Jesus, then... Then when everything about your relationship with God runs through Jesus, then you can finally be at rest because he did perfect, which you could never do. And he died for the imperfect, which you don't have to do. Only Jesus can give you rest. So we learned that seven is a picture of Matthew inviting the world into the rest of Jesus. We learned they picked up basketfuls, seven basketfuls. This was not the lunchbox-sized basket of the feeding of the 5,000. This was a basket that an entire man could fit in. This was the word used for a basket when the apostle Paul got in a basket and they lowered him through the city wall in Damascus so he wouldn't be killed. The picture here is this. Only when you place your entire life into the hands of Jesus do you really rest. Only when you place your entire life into the hands of Jesus will you rest. So some of you are at spiritual rest because you place your eternity in the hands of Jesus. You're not worried about dying because you'll go to heaven. But you've not placed your finances in the hands of Jesus because you're not at rest there. And you've not placed your kids in the hands of Jesus because you're not at rest there. And you've, you've not placed your college in the hands of Jesus because you're not at rest there. You've not placed your health in the hands of Jesus. See, see how it works? 
we see that Jesus wants us to place our entire life, everything and everyone in it, in his hands and say, he's good. And I just trust him. I just trust what he's doing. I don't know why he's doing what he's doing today, but I believe he sees tomorrow better than I do. So I rest in that. Basketfuls tell us a wonderful story about rest. And then maybe for me, as someone who gives tours in Israel, maybe my favorite word of the entire text is Magadan. After Jesus sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. Magadan was a region along the Sea of Galilee whose capital kind of city was Magdala. Anyone sailing to the region of Magadan would dock at Magdala. And it was two or three years ago that I was walking through the ancient ruins of Magdala, which when I first visited Israel in 2013, none of it was uncovered. And then as we've gone, they've uncovered one ancient synagogue and then another ancient synagogue. But a few years ago, they uncovered a boat dock, which was the primary first century boat dock, the first century Magdala. And we went and we stood on this pier And it looked very much like a boat dock would look like today. Ancient piers driven into the ground. And we went to this text in Matthew chapter 15. And we said, holy cow. Jesus got out of the boat right there. This place is real. This person, Jesus, is real. Which means his rest that he offers and calls us to is real. But what part of your life is not in the basket yet? Because Jesus wants you to have the rest that he offers. I promise you all these places are real. If they keep digging, they're going to keep finding more people in archaeology. All these people are real. Which means the message is real. And the offer is real. That you can rest in Jesus. As you contemplate the areas of your life that cause you anger, anxiety, pain. See those as maybe areas you don't totally trust Jesus with and ask him to help you to rest. As we contemplate that today, we're going to take communion together as a congregation. And here's why. I learned as I studied for this text something that I'd never seen before, that Matthew presents three seasons of ministry for Jesus that all end in a meal. Jesus' final public ministry to the Jewish people ends in Matthew chapter 14 at the feeding of the 5,000. So after 14 chapters of ministering to Jewish people. He feeds them a meal. Then they reject him. Jesus' ministry in Gentile territory in Matthew chapter 15 ends with a meal. After he's done all the ministry, they sit down and they have a meal together. And then starting in Matthew chapter 16, his primary ministry and training will be to the disciples. And as you and I know, that one ended in a meal too. The Lord's Supper before he went to the cross. One of the primary offerings of the Old Testament was the fellowship offering. The fellowship offering is when you would have a meal with God. The Jewish people of Matthew 14 got to do it. The Gentile people of Matthew 15 got to do it. The disciples of Jesus got to do it in Matthew 26. And every time the church takes the Lord's Supper, we get to do it. So our ushers are going to come into place here. Our band is going to get in place. And instead of having altar time today... Our band's just going to sing a little bit while our ushers distribute communion. And then we're all going to wait and take communion together. But here, as you prepare your hearts to take communion, and I'll pray and then they'll pass it. Here's what I want you to ask yourself. What in my life is not yet in the basket of Jesus? And I know that. 
because I have no rest. Who in my life is not yet in the basket of Jesus? And I know that because every time I think of my relationship with them, I have no rest. What part of my future is not in the basket with Jesus yet? Because every time I think of it, I'm so anxious or angry. And let's pray that as we have this meal with Jesus, that we'll just be beginning to settle into his rest. As our ushers pass, our band's just going to kind of worship softly behind me, and then we'll all take communion together. So just kind of hold it for a second. God, as we get ready to share a meal with you, we remember that as you ended your ministry publicly to the Jewish people, you fed them a meal. And as you ended your ministry publicly in Gentile territories, you fed them a meal. And as you ended your ministry with the disciples, you sat down and you had a meal together. And then you commanded us when we wanted to remember the rest that you offer in every area of life, that we should reflect on the cross and your forgiveness. And we should learn to trust that what you're asking us to do today is because of what you see coming tomorrow and it can prepare us for that. God, the things in our life, the people in our life, the issues in our life, the fears in our life, the anxieties in our life, the anger in our life, God, help us to put those in the basket of Jesus and rest as we contemplate this moment. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts as we prepare to take communion together. Open our eyes so we can see what you see in our life and then help us to follow you well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.